0: Do we have trouble believing the promises of God? We've just read a passage which is filled with the promises of God. Absolutely jam-packed. Do we have trouble believing that? Now, let's be honest. Do we sometimes read the verses um, that we looked at and questions come into our mind saying this? Is God really for me? Has God really got the future under control? I feel anxious about the future. And it's like I'm going into a big black hole. How can I be sure that God is for me? How can I look into the future with rock solid confidence? Because at this moment in time, and how I'm feeling, I'm struggling. I think that's a reality That if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian. That's a reality that we have. In 2010, a film came out called 127 Hours. I don't know if you've seen it. It was a biographical survival uh, survival, uh, film directed by Danny Boyle um, about uh, a canyoneer called Aaron Ralston. um, And he was into extreme sports. Uh, If you want an example of that, then we've got our own Andy Brumby, who does kind of the same thing, jumping off buildings and stuff. Now, (laughs) as he progresses and as the film progresses, he goes into a canyon called the Blue John Canyon, I think it is, and he goes into a narrow passage and uh, where boulders are suspended and and wedged between the walls of the rock, he descends and then one boulder is jarred loose and uh, Ralston falls and then the boulder comes down and traps his arm within this uh, boulder. So, he's in the crevice of this rock uh, and is trapped. he initially yells for help, but the extreme isolation of his location uh, means that nobody is within earshot. So he's there and he's destined to die. Aaron is completely on his own. He's trapped and destined to die, like I said, and his future looks pretty bleak. The only way, and I'm going to spoil this for you, sorry, but the only way that he um, actually gets out of the canyon is that he has to cut his arm off with a dull knife, uh, which isn't very pleasant to watch, but it's, um, that's the reality. It's, it's a true story. Now I think sometimes if you're a Christian or if if you're a non-Christian we can feel like we're trapped, like we're isolated and that we're alone and the future just looks bleak and the future just looks bleak and we just cannot really look at it with confidence. The passage tells us that that, that there is a way that we can have a rock-solid confidence that we can have a faith um, that has confidence in the future. So much confidence that it allows us to take bold and risk-taking steps of faith for the future, knowing that God is with us. That's what the passage is telling us. So today we'll look at this, um, and if you're a Christian, it will give you strength and hopefully will help you to look at the future with confidence uh, and assurance. If you're not a Christian, this passage will challenge you and will introduce you to the God of the Bible who loves you I want you to have a solid confidence in the future. But just to be warned, apart from being in Christ, your future at this moment in time is guesswork. You don't know where you're going. It's a case of, well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. God at this moment in time isn't for you. In fact, the Bible says that you're in rebellion to God. So... I just want to look at it from both sides. I want to look at it from the sides of, if you're a Christian, how it can can encourage and strengthen you. If you're not a Christian, I pray that um, it will just give you a warning and and, and will hopefully allow you to see the truths of the Bible and how God is actually wanting to be for you. That's what he wants, and that's what we want as well. So we're going to look at the passage in three ways. We're going to look at it uh, under three headings. God's logic, Jesus' death, and our response. So in Paul's letter to the Roman church from, verse 18, from chapter 18 sorry, verses 18 to 39, he's given an assurance of hope, and he argues this with great force. I would recommend that you go back and read from 18. Obviously, we haven't gone uh, that far back tonight. Verses 31 and 39 is a climactic kind of conclusion to Paul's argument. Um, and in, in a nutshell, he says that any opposition from humanity or from Satan himself will not succeed if you are in Christ. Because God is for us. Okay? Any opposition from humanity or Satan will not succeed. That's basically in a nutshell what it's saying. Now there's a key verse which we're really going to focus on and that's verse 32. And it's where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously... Give us all things. Now, I want us to really understand what is being said in this verse. Because this is the key to having a rock-solid confidence in the future. And having a rock-solid confidence in the promises that God has uh, uh, given to us. There is a beautiful, simple, but yet complex logic that runs throughout Romans. And it's an argument. And it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Okay? And I'm going to give you this in an example. Half of this example is made up, okay, and half of this example is real. I will leave it up to you to decide uh, which you think is made up and real, okay. I never have the right DOI uh, equipment in the house, okay. That's um, just one of my things. Uh, so sometimes uh, we have to go to the neighbours and ask for different things, all right. Um, and there's at one point we have a small. Uh, I need a small nail, and there's a small picture that I need to uh, I need to put up. Um, and I didn't have the correct nail. Uh, I wanted to ask the neighbor. Now, Amy, my wife, this is an example, by the way. Amy, my wife, would, uh, would say, I don't think that neighbor's going to give us that nail. Okay. My argument to Amy was, this person, that, uh, this house that we're living in, okay, was built by our neighbor. Okay. Every brick was laid by them, and he wanted, no, he insisted No payment uh, for the labor and materials. He said if there's anything we would ever need for the house in the future, he promised he would provide it. Okay, so if he did that for us, if he provided the house and the bricks and the mortar and everything free of charge, I'm confident that he's going to give us a nail. That's the argument. Now, because of what would happen in the past, obviously, I'm confident what will happen in the future. Because of my neighbor's amazing generosity at great cost to himself, personally, financially, uh, physically, um, I'm confident that he will provide in the future. Okay? Now I know this example is imperfect in a lot of ways, but can we see how this can be applied to the passage in the verse 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son, and because he didn't spare his own son, he will graciously give us all things. God not sparing his own son is by far the most hardest and costliest thing he could have ever have done. Now the reason that might not resonate with us today is because, quite frankly, we've downplayed the cross and we've downplayed God not sparing his son. It's so easy if you've been a Christian for a while to let words just wash over you so we can look at that passage and say he did, did not spare his own son and kind of wash over that. I want us to really read over it and think over it and ponder over it and, and that's what we're going to do in the next section called Jesus' death. But in the next point, um, sorry, so um, I first wanted to talk about Paul when he says about all things and what does he mean? Because if I said to you what is the greatest gift that God could ever give you, what would you say? Would it be health? Would it be financial stability? Would it be popularity? Would it be success in your type of work? What would it be? On the flip side if you're thinking in Christian terms Um, could it be forgiveness of sins could it be the church what is the greatest gift that God has given us my argument today is that God has given us himself now let's think about that if we are forgiven from our sins why is that ultimately it's so we can have have a relationship with God so we can know the creator of the universe we have a relationship with him we are in a church today today Why? Church is a great gift from God. And there's so many great things about church. But ultimately, the reason we are in a church is to point anyone and everyone, including each other, to the God who created us because that's the only way they will have true satisfaction. The thing that blows me away on a permanent basis is that we get God. If you believe that God created the universe, we have access to him and that's his gift to us. And if he's given us himself, he gives us all things. In verse 31, it says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Your answer to that question could be everybody. Who can be against me? Everybody. My work, my family, everybody's against me. Jesus even said that you will be opposed because of him. There will be struggles. In the book that I just spoke about, Future Grace, John Piper says this, he says, what did Paul mean when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? I think he meant, who can be successfully against us? What opposition could ever be against us that our almighty God could not transform for our benefit? The answer is none. There is nothing that can successfully defeat us within this world even to the point of death. Because even at the point of death, our souls get released to be with God forever. In 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verses 7-9, to nine, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are overwhelmingly more than conquerors. If you're in Christ, God is for you and is working all things that happen in your circumstances for your good and for his glory. Do we believe that today? Do we, do we actually believe that the things that we are going through could be worked out for our good in the end? Even if it uh, you know, ends in death? What are you going through in your life today? Do you feel beaten down and crushed? Anxious about the future? Rest assured that God is for you. And because He's with you, He will freely give you all things. He's given you Himself. I hope that's clear. Because if God has given Himself to us, there is nothing that can break us. We may be, uh, have anxieties, as Jesus did, we may have worries. the God of the universe is with us within all those situations and he will eventually turn everything to good. There's been plenty of times within my life and I'm sure there's been plenty of times in your life when you've looked back on situations and hindsight is a great thing, where you've looked back and you think, that was a horrible scenario, but look what God has done through that. I can testify to that and I've had conversations with people who can testify to that as well. Okay, so try to look with confidence in the future as opposed to looking at your situation now and focus on the promises that God has given us because he's given us himself. So that's the first point, God's logic. God says God did not spare his own son. And because he didn't do that, he freely gives us all things. The greater thing for the lesser thing. Okay. God didn't spare his son, so he will give us all these things. Now, Jesus' death. Like I said within the first point, the reason that logic might not resonate with you today is because we've downplayed the cross. The early 20th century Scottish Baptist teacher, Oswald Chambers, said this, All of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, hell afraid of it, while men are the only ones to ignore its meaning. There's a problem in the church today because the cross tends to be downplayed. And the logic that I stated that in my first point, for that to hold significance, we must grasp the weight of what it's actually saying. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. One of the reasons we downplay the cross is we downplay God, and we bring him to our level. What's your viewpoint of God? We tend to shrink him, in our, uh, shrink him down to our level, and, and so we're comfortable. We try to put him into a box. I know I do, but God cannot be put into a box. C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, there is an interaction between some of the characters, and um, they're talking about Aslan, who represents Jesus uh, within, uh, within the uh, story, and they say about Aslan char- Aslan's characteristics, and Aslan says that, and they say about Aslan that he is good, but he is not safe. God is a good person loving heavenly father but let's not try to put him into box and think he's a nice comfortable safe god that we can just place there he's not safe god is a god of love but he also he's also a god who hates sin sin cannot be in the presence of him because because god is what the bible calls holy god is completely on another level And I want us today just to to try and elevate whatever viewpoint we've got of God now. I want us to try and elevate that to another level. To the highest that we can get to. God is pure and untainted in every way. And in sin, in its very nature, it's unclean. The Bible recounts to someone who had a vision of God, and it states in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had uh, had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is a different class. He is completely and utterly on another level. I've heard it said before that our vision of God, that humanity's vision of God, is like getting a matchstick and lighting a fire and then comparing that to the sun. And we are looking at this matchstick saying, yes, that's God. And in reality, the sun is more comparable to, to who and what God is. We try to do, deep, do good deeds and we feel that it would be good enough for him. And the Bible states that in Isaiah 64, 6, that our good deeds are like filthy rags. That, so we, we are trying within this world to, to do good stuff. We try to do charitable work, which is all well and good, but that's not good enough for God because God is, uncle- is, is clean. He is pure. He is righteous. He is good through and through. Sin cannot engage with God at any level. Imagine if it was your birthday, and someone gave you a present, and they said, here you go, happy birthday, and then you open it, and it was a rag um, that was cl- that cleaned the house, and cleaned the toilet, and all the rest of it, and so, there you go, happy birthday. How would you feel? Take a little bit of that feeling, and think about how God feels, and we present our good works to him, and say, there you go, look what I've done. Our good deeds are like filthy rags. Regardless if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we all agree that we're not perfect. As a regular saying goes, as we make excuses for ourselves, and we make excuses for uh, other people, nobody's perfect. That's what we say. We all agree on that. Just before I was leaving to come here, I was just quickly on Facebook. Um, I'm not obsessed, but um, I was quickly on it. And someone put this quote up. No one in this world is pure and perfect... If you avoid people for their mistakes, you will always be alone in this world. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's fantastic for this. So it was one of those positive messages that they, that they put out sometimes. It, and that, and that person isn't, um, isn't a Christian. We agree that no one's perfect. We can't even, I th- and I think we also agree that we can't even keep to our own standards. I can't keep to my own standards. So let's do a test. If you try and... Give yourself three things to do by the end of this week. Try and keep your own standards. Will you do it? Most of you will fail because it's just impossible to do. Some of you may actually pass and keep the three things and you think, yes, I've done it, how good am I? But then then you've actually failed because you've, uh, you've become proud. And the pride is what kicked Satan out of heaven in the first place. So in reality, we all come under the same boat. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. No one is perfect. We're never going to be perfect. And us even trying to think that we are going to be perfect and and good enough for God is just a joke. Okay, so you may ask, well, what's so bad about sin? What is it? Romans 1.25 says, "Um, They, meaning humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served, created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised Amen. The Bible says that we've been created by God for God and we have decided that we don't want to worship and and glorify him and we're going to be worshiping and glorifying created things instead. So whatever he's created, we're going to worship that instead of the creator. And then you may ask, well, what right has God to be angry? First, let me say, what God... That God is completely balanced. He's not like us, where we sometimes fly off the handle. Um, He's completely balanced. And he's incredibly slow to anger. He has a lot of patience. Because we have worshipped created things instead of him, he's angry about that. And he's fully within his rights to be angry about that. But because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, like what's said in, in, in Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 14, it means that we're here now and we have a chance. We have a chance to, uh, to reconcile to God because he is slow um, in, in giving us what we deserve. Here's the reality. God created me and you in his likeness and image. The Bible says he knew us from when, uh, within our mother's womb. He's formed and created us. We're living in God's world. We're eating God's food. We're breathing God's air, and we're using the gifts that God has given us. And we decide, instead of thanking Him, like i said before, we turn our back on Him. That's sin. In a nutshell, that's what sin is. Let me give you an example. And unfortunately, some of you may have experienced this. You're married. You're living in uh, in your home with your family. And you find out that while you've been away that someone else has been in your house and they've put on your clothes, they've been in your bed and they are being a parent to your children. How would you feel about that? I know how I would feel about that. I would say you would have a right to be angry. It's what the Bible says, uh, you'd have a righteous anger. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is what's the most common sort, but righteous anger is at that point in time where you would be angry about that. I would say that I would question your love for the family if you weren't angry, if you just weren't bothered at all. When we live for something or someone other than God who created us, that not only grieves him, but it makes him angry. The Bible calls it wrath. Because of sin, our world, our nation, is completely lost. See, don't you look at the news and the murders and the rapes and all the things like that, don't you look at that and just feel total disgust? Or have we got to a point now where we see so much horrific things on the news that it just goes over our heads because we've seen it so many times? An American pastor wrote this about the Holocaust and human nature. The only explanation that can account for both the evil of the Holocaust and the compassionate response of the world community uh, after the fact is the Bible, biblical understanding of human nature. The reason we, act, we react with horror to the Nazi atrocities is because we are made in the image of God, which includes the conscience that God has given us and our capacity for compassion and love. Yet the ultimate reason such atrocities uh, should be carried out is the same reason every one of us is capable of evil. Human nature is fallen under the curse of sin. We are all fallen. And, it, and if our human nature, if our evil is, is unleashed, then we get to the point where you get to like the Holocaust. And what it is saying is that we are all co- capable of doing that. Within a certain scenario, um, if, we're, if we're born in a certain se- within a certain time, we're all capable of going that far. Because that's the way we're wired naturally. See, when you look at things like that, don't you just think, God, if you're so powerful and if you're so great, why don't you do something about this? Why, if there is a God, why don't you just get rid of sin? Just get rid of sin and that'll be the problem. That'll be the issue, you know, they'll be finished. There'll be no problem there, okay? And I'll say, okay, let's go with that thought. You've asked the question, well, why don't we just get rid of sin? Do you want God to get rid of a little bit of sin or all of sin? Because if we get, a li- get rid of a little bit of sin, then that would still mean that the sin in the world and this world isn't perfect. If we got rid of all of sin, then where would uh, me and you stand? Because if God did get rid of all of sin, then we would be wiped out. There will be no one left in this room because we are all sinners by nature and choice. We are all the same. We're not perfect. God is uh, pure and clean. Sin cannot engage with God. And sin is a problem for God. Okay, And we are all sinners. Now you may be thinking, what does this have to do with the cross and the logic that I spoke about before? And my answer is everything. I want us to grasp the weight and the reality of sin and the problem that it causes. Because up to this moment, this message has been quite bleak. It's been, we're all sinners, no one's perfect, God is uh, pure, and if that was it, then we'd have no hope. Okay? Now listen. For God to be for us, for God to be able to give us all things, for God to give us um, himself, all our sin has to be punished and done away with. There is no way we can have access to God with sin in our lives. So let me ask you another question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? The Bible points to a number of people. Judas delivered him over. uh, it says in Mark. Pilate delivered him over. It says in Mark again. Herod and the Jewish people and the Gentiles delivered him over. That, that's what it says in Acts. And we delivered him over in 1 Corinthians. It even says that Jesus laid down his own life. When he says in John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. However, throughout all of this, Paul says in Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who killed Jesus? It was his father. It was his father who killed him, and it was his father who crushed him. Now, the amazing news is that even before time began, God the Father and God the Son had a plan. The plan was that God, who has all authority, would deliver his son over to death. That was the plan. Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God." God. Isaiah 53 puts it even more bluntly. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Or as Romans 3, 25 says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Why did God not spare his own son, whom he had a perfect relationship with? Because it was the only way that God could spare us. That is why. The curse for our sin the wrong that, we, that we've done because of God's holy anger had to be poured out somewhere. And there's only two places where it could go. He either goes to Jesus or it goes to us when we finally die. Two places. Now, propitiation means that God's anger was placed on Jesus and in that, God was satisfied with that. The Holy God that I spoke about, who we compare to like a matchstick, and we compare it's like comparing a matchstick to the sun. He was satisfied in what happened to Jesus with his holy, with his anger towards sin. Now, if Jesus takes our place, our sins has been punished. Past, present, and future. That's a great hope within Christianity. That's the gospel. We are clean before God, before a righteous, holy God. We are clean before Him, and we can call Him Father, and we can have a relationship with Him. That's the great hope, and that's a great message. If anyone knows me well enough, you know that I, I like my like my films. And um, the whole Batman trilogy has been, um, you know, one of the one of the big ones, and it's uh, um, one of my favourites. I think uh, the second one, Batman's voice, was a bit dodgy, but other than that, I think it was fine. Um, So we've got Batman Begins. I won't give any spoilers away. We've got Batman Begins, which is the um, kind of origins of him. We've got The Dark Knight, where um, it ends by Batman actually taking um, uh, the blame for something he hasn't done. Okay, and hence the title. Um, And Commissioner Gordon, who's kind of Batman's friend within all this, he's... um, he knows it all, but he keeps it to himself because it could uh, lose him his job. Okay? So that's kind of like The Dark Knight. Dark Knight rises then. Um, there's this young upstart called John Blake who's, a, uh, who's, a, who's a, a, a police officer, an up-and-coming police officer. And he keeps on having, I don't know if you've seen the film, but they keep on having this argument, him and Commissioner Gordon. And he keeps on saying, tell me about that night. You know, Batman doing all these things and killing all those people. It just doesn't seem like him. And Commissioner Gordon doesn't really give an answer. Okay. And then it gets to a p- the point where it's, it's, it, the film is um, amping up. And they're having this argument again. And Blake t- says to him, tell me about this night, that night, to Commissioner Gordon. And he says to Commissioner Gordon, you betrayed everything you stood for because you knew the truth. You knew that Batman was innocent. And the Commissioner Gordon says this. He says, one day you may face such a moment of crisis... And in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did to plunge their hands into the filth so you can keep your hands clean. Now, without Jesus, you're in crisis. And you need a friend who, not only at just the right time, has plunged their hands into the filth, Jesus plunged his whole body, submerged his whole body into the filth of this world, into the sin of this world. And he was punished by his father. Why? So we can be clean. That's why. So we can be clean. So we can live with God and have God for us. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus was, is our substitute. And he took the blame for the things that we have done. Elsie Fitzpatrick in her book, Counsel from the Cross, says this. You and me are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe, but you are more loved and welcomed than you ever dared hope. God's logic within the passage is from the greater to the lesser. God, not sparing his own son, is the hardest, costliest thing he could have ever have done. And if you take one thing away from uh, tonight, I want that to be elevated in your mind. And not just to look at the words in verse 32, where it says, he who did not spare his own son and let it just wash over you. It was a massive, massive act for that to happen. For God to punish Jesus is a massive act. And because of that, He will, not might, He will freely give us all things. Which, compared to what's happened before, is an easy task for God. I hope that makes sense. From the greater to the lesser, He did not spare His own Son. And because of that, He will freely give us all things. Our response then, We can respond to this in a number of ways. And this is my third and final point. You can say that, firstly, that you don't believe in any of it. You can say that I will will deal with the sin myself. I'm I'm fine. I don't believe that God is God. I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins. I don't believe that I can have confidence in the future. And because of that, I'm fine. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll take it. And what I would do, I would plead with you and just say that Ask God to open your eyes. If you have an inkling that there there is a God, ask him to open your eyes. Ask him um, to give you the motivation to keep coming to things like this. Ask him to uh, uh, give you the motivation to keep asking questions. Because God is real. Because God is real. And um, we do not want God's wrath to be upon you. So I would ask him for that. He's provided you a way out. In two Peter three nine, it says, "The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants to put you wants you to put your trust in what Jesus has done, and he wants to give you all things. He wants to give you himself." In uh, the second point, the second way you may say, "I believe this." You may say. Uh, I believe in what Jesus has done on the cross. I get that. But I can't feel like God is for me. With the cir- circumstance what I've got because of w- what's going on in my life. It's chaotic. I can't, I can't look into the future. I can't plan for everything. My work is a nightmare. My kids are off the wall. Everything is going insane. I cannot believe that God is for me. I believe that Jesus died for me. I fully believe that Jesus died for me. But can I believe that God is for me? I believe in the first part. The second part, I'm struggling with. Can I just encourage you? If you're like me, sometimes you don't want to see the future with any confidence, I hope, because we're too scared we'll be disappointed. I, I know I do this, and this is reality. I sometimes, this might be just me, I sometimes play out the worst-case scenario, and if it's any better than that, then it's a bonus, Right? As Christians, we are called to fight against this feeling. We need to ask God to help us continually uh, to have the faith that looks back at what Jesus has done and because of that, we can have a confidence in the future. And we can have a confidence that he will give us strength in the future as well. That he will use all things for his good, for our good, sorry, and his glory. Can I encourage you to use Jesus as your model? We might not look to the future with joy or in anticipation. And I'm not asking that we all you know, are smiling and when things are falling around. I'm um, asking us for us to be real. Um, we may be anxious and we may be scared about the future. Um, just like Jesus in the was in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But like the passage says in Hebrews 12.2, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Scorn in its shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? He's now at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ Jesus who died, in verse 34 under this it says, Christ Jesus who died, More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding with us, for us. Jesus was raised from dead and is sitting with his father, ruling and reigning. We don't worship someone who's dead. We worship someone who is alive right at this moment in time. There is no um, graveside for Jesus. There's no memorial for Jesus because he is alive and well. And he knew and he was confident of the future um, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And it says, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. We can have that joy as well. We can know, then we can look and we can feel at this moment in time that things are not going well. That we can look at a circumstance and we think, that, think, think things aren't going well. But have a confidence in the future of where it's going. Have a confidence that God has got you is by your side and he's got your back. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 84, 11 and 12, where God says, um, what the psalmist says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I pray that in our anxiety, as we look into the midst of the future, we can suffer well and endure hard times um, as we know that there is an everlasting joy that is set before us, let's try and be people of rejoicing and rejoice in the hope that is set before us, not our current circumstance. Because it's very easy to navel-gaze and look down. And it's very easy for us to not look forward and not know that God is for us. So let's keep going. That's part of what church is about, spurring us on. I like what Martin said in terms of the life groups. That's a great way of um, being part of a community knitting where we can spur each other on because living with, in this world isn't easy I know that but we need each other um, to keep going and then the third response and the final one is is that you can believe uh, everything that's been said you believe that Jesus has died you, um, you believe that your future is secure you believe both sides of it but there's one thing we keep all this amazing news to ourselves. It's like we've become like Gollum, and we have all these amazing jewels, and we have all these these, these these amazing riches that we've got, and and we and we keep it to ourselves. See, Jesus commands us to not only believe that, but to go out and make disciples with His authority. The passage has given us assurance that our future is secure. That all things will work out for our good. We are safe in Christ. No matter what happens in the future, we are safe in Christ. So that allows us, that frees us up to take risky, bold, God-glorifying steps of faith into the future, knowing that God is going to be with us. Am I saying that's gonna be easy? No. Am I saying that every circumstance we we you know we're working, you know, things are gonna work out fine. No, what I am saying is that God is going to work everything that happens around us for our good and His glory. And let's believe that. The Christian life is believing um, something and living it out, practically living it out. One of the dangers I feel that we have within this church, I would say, one of the dangers I think this is potentially what we have, is that because we're in a consumer environment as in escape. We, we could feel that this service is something where we come to, we hear the message, we get a drink, we listen to the music, and then we can leave. And it does not impact where, our lives. And that's the reality for every church. But I could, because of this place in particular, I think we could get quite consumeristic. Okay? And I want, us to want, I want to try and warn us away from that and not be comfortable where we are. Because what Christ has said is for us to go out and go and make disciples and he will be for us and he will be with us and he gives us that authority to not be comfortable here where we are. Because there is a world out there where God's wrath, like I spoke about in the second point, is upon them. It's real. People are people are dying every day. That's the reality of it. And we cannot be comfortable. We have to be looking at situations with our friends, with family members, of how we can impact this community and how we can uh, can impact our work and everything for the gospel because it's real and God's wrath is real. So, remember what I spoke about when I spoke about Aaron at the start who was trapped in the canyon. What he needed was at just the right time was for someone to hear his cry, to come from the outside, to descend into the canyon, and to take the weight of the boulder and carry it away, allowing him to get out the canyon safely, without him having to cut off his arm. Let's thank Jesus, he has taken the boulder of sin away from us, so we can live in this world with hope and freedom. God's logic, Jesus' death, and our hope.